Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Donna Tench. I'm co-chair of the Environment and Energy section here at the BBA, and I'm pleased to be pinch hitting as moderator for this program. This panel uh, developed out of discussions with lawyers and current, former, and prospective clients of attorneys interested in providing pro bono assistance on climate and, uh, and environmental justice-related matters. As environmental justice, or EJ, has become commonly used, uh, commonly used terms by politicians, government administrators, the media, mainstream environmentalists, and many more, people are learning what it means. There's a growing need also to ensure that lawyers are prepared to provide culturally competent and appropriate services to organizations and community groups that work with environmental justice populations. Today, we're really pleased that we'll hear from attorneys and community leaders on what they want lawyers to know about working with EJ populations in communities of color. What support attorneys, uh, what support attorneys doing the work wish they had and what lessons they've learned. Next month, there'll be an opportunity for lawyers and law students to network with and meet people working at organizations that need pro bono support on EJ and climate matters. Um, so please look out for that uh, information. It's part two of this program and it's called e um, Environmental Justice Pro Bono Networking Affair. And again, it will be, uh, we don't have an exact date, but it'll be in early May. So why don't we start the program with um, our first speaker, who is Gwen King, a partner at Nolan and King. Gwen is an experienced litigator who fo focuses on real estate and employment litigation. Prior to forming Nolan and King, Gwen was a partner at the Boston law firm of Sugarman Rogers. Gwen's commitment to pro bono has routinely landed her on the SJC honor roll for pro bono work. Welcome, Gwen. Thank you. Happy to be here. Good. I want to start um, with, well, if you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to work on the Brockton Power case and what surprised you about working on that case? Um, sure. So some background about the Brockton Power case. Um, it, I've been on it for about eight years. Three children of mine have been born while on that case. <laughs> Excuse me. But my former partner, Lisa Goodhart at Shookman Rogers, she had been on that case well before me, I believe maybe about 15 years is I think what I count now. And um, the case came to her initially, I believe through ACE. Um, at that point, it was uh, uh, an EFSB decision was being appealed up to the SJC and she got involved. And um, <laughs> she and my former firm, Sugarman Rogers, at that point, decide they would sign on. And, and to be quite clear, I don't think anyone thought that this signing on for this pro bono representation would be going on 15 years later. Um, I joined in about eight years ago, and it has been a roller coaster. And I, I think it's been as uh, one of the more meaningful experiences of my legal career, because as our case has evolved and taken numerous terms, and we've progressed our, our the merits of the case in our favor, the law has, has been changing. And so what has been fascinating to watch and to experience is this very dynamic approach to environmental justice advocacy, which has been lawyers fighting the battle uh, in legal proceedings, advocates fighting at the state house and our community, our EJ community, doing the work on the ground uh, to help inform both the legislatures and the advocates and the lawyers to make sure that what we're advocating for really meets their real-time needs and in our case, advances it based on the facts on the ground. So um, we are currently still uh, in, in this fight, uh, currently in front of uh, the commissioner or in front of the chief presiding officer. But we have made huge advances for EJ uh, that we're immensely proud of. We got a very exciting opinion from the commissioner a few years ago, ordering that there would be a health impact assessment as a requirement before any application would be approved by the department. And that was huge. That has a fundamental impact on EJ cases going forward and hopefully sets a rubric for health impact assessments to be to be um, something that is is a fundamental criteria for any 
application that affects uh, EJ community. So we have some wins under our belt. We haven't fully rung the bell yet, but we are optimistic that we're going in the right direction. Thanks, Gwen. That's great. And and just as a little background for folks, when you've um, said that you've, um, I think, had a ruling from the chief presiding officer, the case is now at the Department of Environmental Protection. Yes, right. sorry. So that's that's the body that it's before. The, that's great. And, um, you know, I guess if it's been eight years, you've gotten to know your clients pretty well. You've described some of the work that um, they have done. Um, I guess, how would you describe your relationship and, and how that's impacted the way the case has played out? So I think what's fascinating, you know, when you think about the lifespan of a client, that's actually been at play with us. We've had clients who are range in age. We've had elderly clients who we've unfortunately lost some of them over time. Um, we have clients who have who are themselves legislators who have since run to be on municipal boards to try to affect change on the ground. We have a very active state legislature uh, and Michelle Dubois, who has been a fantastic advocate. Um, but in terms of the relationship with the clients, one thing that has been uh, a key to our success is never thinking that they're not they're not the reason we're doing this. Sometimes it can feel abstract and legal and academic, these arguments. Um, and you can forget that there's clients who are really going to be impacted by the outcome. And so we have constantly made an effort to keep them informed of every order, of every motion, of every brief that gets sent it. And they do provide us real-time feedback that in our case made the fundamental difference. In our case, a meeting with the clients, a Zoom call, an update, where are we at in this case, led to a client disclosing to us that there had been a fundamental change in the actual physical state of the property at issue. And that tidbit, if that hadn't been disclosed to us, uh, that could have gone unnoticed by the department and has fundamentally shifted the course of our case and whether or not there's even any feasibility left to this project is now an issue. So, you know, those types of check-ins with your clients uh, were so critical on our case, but also the appreciation we get back for uh, for the work that we've done is, is obviously very gratifying. And even watching your clients arrange how they're going to get their transportation in to make sure that they're there at the hearings, you know, that's a huge thing to see them come in and 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 they're fighting it. I mean, really, they reached out, they got involved with ACE, they've been in this battle for 15 years and it's an epic battle on their part. And um, it's inspiring to see their civic engagement in this way too. So I do have a question, Grant. You are working now for yourself, it's a small firm. Um, what concerns, if any, do you have about providing pro bono support either in general or specifically for this case, which can be pretty time consuming. Yeah. So I'll speak on that in two regards. I'll speak on it first with my prior Sugarman Rogers hat, because I think they uh, they get they should get a, an immense amount of credit for the commitment they made to this case. So um, and then I'll speak on it in my more recent involvement in my my now new firm. So Sugarman Rogers, to their credit, and it really has a philosophy of committing to pro bono work and, and civic commitment that long predated this case, case. They did not shy away from committing to this case. And when I say they, I think it's really important to say they because in a firm that's about 25 attorneys, which is what that was at the time, Lisa Goodhart was like, I would like to do this case. She's a fantastic environmental litigator. And she said, I would like to do this case. But the partners supported her in doing that case. And that's, something they all sign up for financially in a way. Because when you take on a case of this David and Goliath proportion and the length of time, it is a firm commitment. It's not just the attorneys who are in there arguing, it's the entire firm. And um, at Sugarman Rogers, I mean, I got staffed on it when I was an associate initially, and they were very supportive of me growing with the case and having a key role in the case. And um, it was a huge 
a huge commitment for the firm. And um, so it's not just the individuals at a firm that size who can make the commitment, it's the firm. And so ultimately, when we got that decision from the commissioner ordering a health impact assessment, I mean, Lisa and I and Sophia and Richard Zhuang and, and all the other attorneys who had been involved in the case in its various iterations were extremely emotional and moved. But the celebration and the, the emotions behind it were shared by all of our partners because they had made the commitment and, and they deserve the applause for that commitment as well. And I think now, having transitioned to my own firm, my request to Lisa was, can I please stay involved because I have given so much of my time and my brain energy and my hopes <laughs> to this case. I would really like to stay involved. And she was very generous and the clients were very enthusiastic and as well as Sophia in asking me to stay involved. So for me, it's a no brainer at this point because um, they would have to fight me, honestly, to keep me away from it at this point. Um, but yes, the financial... There will be a financial impacts when it's busy. It's busy. I mean, when you're writing briefs and you're having hearings, it's it's the same commitment as it is for a paying client. But those are just the things that are important to me and I know are important to Lisa. So. Thank you very much, Gwen. And what we'll do is we'll hold any questions for all of the panelists till the end, uh, end of the program. Um, our next speaker is... Uh, Reverend Curtis Dias, and he's the pastor of the Calvary Pentecostal Church in East Freetown. And I believe you've been the pastor there since 1995. That's correct. Um, and Reverend Dias, you are not only a pastor, you're a community leader and a passionate environmental advocate um, and have been for decades. How did working with uh, a lawyer make a difference to your neighborhood in Freetown? At, uh, thank you for having me. First of all, to answer that question, without the pro bono lawyers, we would never have been able to be in our community today. Uh, the lawyers that we work with um, were excellent, and they saved our church, our community, our culture. I mean, and without the lawyers that um, stepped in, um, we would have had no hope other than, of course, God. But if you don't mind, I'd like to give a little background uh, for what we've been doing. And if you don't, I can make a little a presentation to you and who those that are listening. As you know, my name is Reverend Curtis Dias, and I want to thank you for allowing me to be here. Um, in the 1900s, early 1900s, uh, Cape Verdeans came over to each Freetown, Black Cape Verdeans. And um, each Freetown is a small community, less than five to 6,000 people. We only have 1% of minorities and they all live on Burley Road where we're at. Um, where we live, it's, uh, when they first came, it was all a dirt road. It was a, a very small road and they built their homes in the community. And the people in the community used to call it like Little Africa, um, Tobacco Road and it um, like that. But the people were hardworking, taxpaying people. Many of them were uh, veterans. In 1951, we decided to build a, a, a church in our community, and it was a flourishing community, families and everything like that. But it was a small black Cape Verdean community and self-supportive. Um, throughout the years, they always valued the land, but they never valued the people in our community. So it came to a point that they wanted to put some businesses in our community. And, you know, environmental justice is this. You get cheapest land to put the most unclean business in so you can make the greatest profit, you know. So they targeted our community and they put maybe four or five junkyards in our community. That Then they put a tire dump, a million tires in our community that's still here today. And one day the tire dump got on fire and it burnt for days upon days upon days with smog and all that. And the way they put it out, they couldn't put it out with a fire truck. So they dug holes completely around and they filled the tires and then let it burn. Even to this day, that has not even been cleaned up now. And we're concerned about the EEE mosquitoes up for the children in, in our community. But then they wanted to put um, the state Highway bond wanted to put a place so they could store rock salt. So in the 1964, 70s, they put the state bond in our community and they didn't put no liner underneath it. 
So what happened was it seeped all throughout the people's drinking water and public wells in our community, and it destroyed our drinking water. And what happened was the state took responsibility, subbed it out to the local town officials, and the town officials, they gave us um, three-quarter inch um, water pipes, reduced a half inch, and that means when our PC, uh, uh, you know, water pump for pressure came out, we were only having five PCIs, 12. That meant that we could not take showers and wash our dishes. We couldn't do laundry. And the woman could not even bathe. And we didn't have no uh, no, no, no aspect of um, washing clothes, taking showers. And if it was a fire, we couldn't even put a fire out. So it was a public health and public hassle. So in 1995, when I became the pastor here, I found out that our water pressure was maybe at 12%, if that. So I went to the water commission. I said, I don't want to uh, apply pressure. We just want water pressure. And they 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 said, no, we, um, you got enough. And we had to go, you know, get everything done. So we were debating about that. But let me go. One day I went to my mailbox. And I crossed the street, and it's very difficult to cross the street because in our community, they put tractor-trailer companies. And our, our road is a country road. It's a small road with no uh, sidewalks, no playground. It's hard to even cross our street. But when I went into my mailbox, I found a postcard, and I looked on the postcard, and when it said it was from the zoning board, and they said that they're going to zone Braley Road, our community, all residential. Excuse me, industrial. So I went to my first meeting in 1995-96, and I said, I raised my hand. I said, my name is Reverend Dias. I think you made a mistake that this is a residential community. We have a church, a community that have been here all these years. And they said, Reverend Dias, we did not make a mistake. I said, no, you made a mistake. They said, didn't. I said, no, you made a mistake. And they said, no. And that's how I engaged in environmental justice and raised, uh, racism. And they were doing expository zoning to us. And, you know, expository zoning is, is this, that it's like a accordion. They, they just squeeze you in, squeeze you in. And before you know it, no one's there any longer. And they were, they were going to eliminate us. Then they wanted to put an industrial park in our community, an asphalt plant, a concrete plant, and TJ Maxx wanted to come and put a warehouse in our community where there's 350 tractor trailers a day, seven days a week in our community. So it would have destroyed our whole community. Now, we're minority, not only in, in, in face, but we're minority numbers. So we went to the Board of Selectmen, they never helped us out. And all these multimillionaires were targeting our areas. So I didn't know what to do. Then I heard a place they called ACE. And when I went to Roxbury and they said it was on the second floor of a bank and I all the way to Dudley Station. And I went up there and I met a man named Eugene Benson. And Eugene Benson told me, it was a sign on the second floor about environmental injustice. I told my friend, that's who we are. I didn't even know the word environmental justice. And Eugene Benson was kind enough to sit me down, educate me. Then he told me that he had relationships, I guess, with Boston Bar Associations and lawyers. And he was kind enough to give me a lawyer. And the lawyer firm that he gave me was Gregor McGregor Environmental Law. Now, I didn't know who he was. So they gave me, I called Mr. McGregor. And Mr. McGregor said that for the first seven days that he would talk to me every single day that we would have to talk. And we, we talked about our case. And he now McGregor was supposed to be with me for only six hours. And he'd been with me now collectively over 22 years that we've been having a relationship with each other. McGregor came in and, and, he, and he helped us. And what he did, he knew the environmental laws. So he knew we had a problem with zoning. So he helped us with zoning that um, we got our zoning to be residential all throughout the whole community after many more beatings. Uh, he headed up with his, his firm. In our community, the businessmen um, wanted to put businesses in our community. So what they used to do, they used to cut down all the trees first for money. Then they would take out all the gravel for money. 
then they will bring the dirtiest business to come in. But because we knew our community, we knew they were filling in wetlands. So two of the businessmen filled in 5.1 acres of wetlands on one property and 3.1 acres on the other end. McGregor helped us to understand the wetlands that goes in the waterways, that goes in the brooks, into the streams, into national waters. And we were able to go to Region 1 and, and we were able to get uh, aerials done to show them. So this way we stopped them so they got con consent orders so they can stop that work because they were illegally doing this work. And he was doing this all pro, pro bono. So he helped us there with the EPA. He helped us also with the Department of Justice on our civil rights claim. And also TJ Maxx, he was kind enough to bring the president of TJ Maxx into his office so we can discuss our matter and told him that it was the environmental justice community. And the president believed us and he pulled his company off of that location. Now I'm for business. I love business. I love businessmen, but it has to be in the right location. It wasn't, you know, like I was telling them they should put a full meeper on. If you ever want to stop environmental injustice, and then anytime you think is a, a environmental justice community, let's have a full meeper so it can protect the community. You understand? So, so McGregor was there to help us on that. He was to help us with the Department of uh, Revenue, I mean, of Justice. Then I, I give credit to Ace again, and I met a woman named Nail. Uh, her name is Nadine Cohen. She was excellent, and she comes from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights um, in, in Boston. And she came and volunteered, and she did pro bono work. And what we did, we took the it was Calvary Pentecost Church versus the town of Freetown for racial discrimination, environmental justice and all that. We took them to federal court, John Moakley Federal Court. Then Nadine Colin, who is a brilliant woman, she was there to help us with all our depositions of all our clients in our community, free of charge. She did all the depositions with her staff. Then she was able to hook us up with an organization in Boston, Mintz Levin Law Firm. And we had to present out and prove our case to Men's Levin that it was worthy, you know, and they accepted it. And we went to John Moakley's federal uh, court case. And after we went for a period of time, we won summary judgment saying that we were right, that we have enough evidence to go forward so we can, um, you know, have go for trial. A week before trial, they offered us $100,000. We refused it. Then they went to 200 by the week, couple of days before they gave us $300,000 in settlement agreement. We're able to get a bread and a water system in our community that's worth over $280,000. Everyone that had PSIs of 5%, now all of us in our community got 56 to 61 pounds of pressure throughout the whole community. And it not only helped us out, but all the businesses in the community were blessed by our advocacy in that way. And then um, TJ Maxx, when they pulled out, the property that they were preparing for the warehouse, we were able to negotiate with the businessmen because they want to tap in our water lines. And they put, you want to talk about smart growth. We put 39 brand new $500,000 homes into our community in the spot they did now is all residential, it's community-based and everything like that. And we would never been able to do that. Of course, without the help of God, with the help of ACE, you know, the lawyers from uh, Boston in, you know, then Mintz Levin. So for me, when I talk about Boston Bar Association, I, I, you know, I like to say thank you to Ace and McGregor and Nady Colin, everybody, Miss Levin, because we wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be here today. The community wouldn't be here today, and it's and the community's doing very, very well. We're helping, so you know, I I come as an advocate. You know, McGregor, he graduated from Dartmouth College. He graduated from Harvard. You know. When I was young, I didn't even graduate from school. And then I went back to school. So it's what a combination, what, what, what a reward, you know, that we saved the church, the community, our culture, and we've been able to help out 
you know, thousands of other organizations too because of it. So, you know, so to me, it's one of the great, without the Boston Bar Association and ACE and having a program, we would have no hope to be survival in our community. So that's basically what I'm talking about. Thank you very much, Reverend Dyes. And and you've actually covered all my questions. I mean, you've talked about certainly the benefits of community lawyering and um, just the successes that we can have and and what it must mean to all those attorneys who have worked on your various cases. So thank you very much. And I'm sure we'll have some questions for you a little bit later. Thank you very Um, much. Right now, we'll go on to our um, next speaker, who is Raquel Halsey. And she's the executive director for the North American Indian Center of Boston, or NICOB. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, And NICOB is the oldest urban Indian center in Massachusetts, and it provides cultural, social, educational, and professional services to New England Native Americans since 1969. Ms. Halsey is currently a member of the Boston Foundation's 2021-2023 Neighborhood Fellowship Fellows Program. She also serves on the Massachusetts Environmental Justice Table, and she has many more affiliations and accolades, but I'll have to stop here for now. Um, And I just, I just want to start off with, um, Raquel, you've been doing community-focused work for most of your career. Can you tell us what it was like uh, working with lawyers at, at NICOB? And correct me if I've said that wrong, please. <laughs> no, you said it correctly. And I just want to say hi, everyone. Um, uh, it's our practice at the North American Indian Center to rep- to recognize the land that we're on. Um, and that's especially important for me as an urban Indian, meaning someone who is not traditionally from here. I am a member of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Darikaran Nation. And we are on uh, blessed to be on the lands of the Wampanoag, Nipmuc, and Massachusetts peoples, and and many more stewards that have um, lived and taken care of these lands since time immemorial. So I, I'll start there. But um, thank you for that introduction. Um, and and uh, I, I want to add a little bit of history to it. So um, our organization was originally established as the Boston Indian Council, and uh, that was when. We served as a hub of social and civil rights activities for the American Indian and Alaska Native and First Nations communities that were here in Boston, both traditionally from here and those like myself who are transplants. Um, And in in the um, the the. Throughout the process of doing the work of fighting for um, housing, of fighting to um, have protections in school, of, of fighting um, to protect our families through the Indian Child Welfare Act, et cetera, um, we were designated, the Boston Indian Council was designated a state liaison with resident members of tribes for whom the state has entered into treaties and other agreements with in 1976 by Governor Dukakis. Um, and around that same time, uh, the center, the, the folks that made up the, the center were looking for a new home in Boston. Our, our first headquarters was a funeral home um, that experienced a fire and left the community in need of a new center. And, and that began uh, the, the work of negotiating the lease with the state, uh, who is our, our leaseholder in our current location. So we've been here now since the mid-70s. Um, and and really, um, attorneys have helped us to do to do a lot of the day to day services. But um, on in, in the broader scope, they've also been absolutely instrumental in um, helping us to negotiate these leases with the state. And and in particular, our 99 year lease that began in 2007. Um, that was through the support of uh, attorneys at Ropes and Gray. And um, today we lack representation. So that is actually an ask to um, help us to continue on our path of um, making our current home um, a a living building, a nice, safe, healthy building for indigenous peoples in the city because we're the only one. We're the oldest urban Indian center in the state. Um, and, And it's vitally important for people to have connection to community and to also have access to services. 
And uh, that's where an, another ask comes into play. So um, I mentioned that we we deal a lot with um, our First Nations folks. Those are Indigenous people from Canada. Um, and there is a treaty, uh, Jay's Treaty of, of, excuse me, of 1794, that was established uh, between the U.S. and Canadian governments to um, continue to allow people, uh, Native people, to cross freely, to live freely, to work freely in both Canada and the U.S. And people still utilize that today. Um, what most service providers don't understand is that um, that actually uh, means that Native peoples cannot be denied services. We cannot be denied entry and we can not be searched uh, for sacred objects when we cross the border um, and our sacred objects cannot be impounded. And yet uh, that happens almost daily. And uh, unfortunately it also happens, um, there, it creates an impact on our folks who are experiencing housing insecurity, um, who are in access or in, in dire need of, of healthcare um, and other um, services, you know, for instance, uh, domestic violence shelter, access to domestic violence shelters and services. Um, and, and it is a heavy burden that our center has continued to deal with um, in in, in our need to constantly um, educate service providers that are working for the state um, to constantly uh, urge attorneys to understand Jay's treaty and to also understand treaty law in general, because there are um, there's there's almost a completely separate system of laws that impact us from everything from housing um, to um, jurisdiction over um, perpetrators who commit violence against Native women to um, whether or not we um, can keep our children in our homes. You know, the, the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed in 1978 and it's currently under review by the Supreme Court. Um, but, but what people can do is understand the law and then codify those protections into state law. And that is something that Massachusetts is it has done some amount of, but other states are far beyond um, what this state has done. So there's, you know, there's really um, a, a wide range of issues um, that that require the help of people to who actually understand um, the legal system that impacts indigenous people. Thank you so much for the background and, and your description of, of the type of legal representation that you, um, that the organization and that your people need. Um, I guess, you know, as I mentioned, we are going to have a program in early May um, to pair up attorneys um, and law students with organizations such as yours. And so I think that's one way perhaps that this program um, and the Boston Bar Association can can assist your organization and others like yours in this process. Um, we'll circle back perhaps to um, talk about some other questions. I want to make sure that we um, get our last speaker in. Um, so um, Sophia Owen is a senior attorney for Alternatives for Community and Environment and the director of the Environmental Justice Legal Services Program. She works with a staff to um, ensure that the legal rights of people of color and low-income residents are protected. She also provides systematic legislative and regulatory advocacy on behalf of environmental justice communities at the local, state, and federal levels. As you may have heard, she's also the co-chair of the Pro Bono and Public Service uh, Committee here at the Boston Bar Association in our Environment and Energy Law section. Um, since 2001 or 20, yeah, 2021, Sophia has served as representative for Region One on EPA's agents, uh, EPA's National Environmental Justice Advisory Committee. And as with all of our panelists, um, Sophia's resume is very long, so I've just given you a snippet of it. Um, uh, as a personal note, as the co-chair of the Environment and Energy Law section, we are really thrilled and fortunate to have Sophia's time to help us develop programs like this and also to advise our other uh, committee co-chairs uh, on, on their programs as well. 
But um, Sophia, why don't you maybe tell us a little bit of, about your work at ACE and um, about ACE's pro bono legal program and what support uh, BIPOC and EJ organizations need at this current moment? Thanks, Donna. Um, and I just want to say thank you again to you for, for stepping in as the moderator at the last minute. Um, you know, that my former co-chair and I really appreciate all of your support and the support of everyone at the BBA. Um, so, yes, I am the senior attorney at Alternatives for Community and Environment, or ACE. Um, we are a community-based organization that's focused on environmental justice and transit justice um, in the historically Black neighborhood of Roxbury in Boston. Um, and we do, um, as Donna said, a combination of direct representation of uh, folks on the front lines of pollution and the impacts of, of environmental racism and uh, the systemic work to build the new um, and create the solutions that, that we know that um, environmental justice populations and Black and Brown and Indigenous and low-income folks need. Um, and I, uh, we've been around for about 30 years and I feel like I, I get to stand on the, the shoulders of, of giants like Eugene Benson, who was mentioned, like Stacey Rubin, like Ann Rogers and others, um, who've been doing this work long before myself. Um, but we have a, we were founded with the intent of both, um, providing legal assistance, but also building power for communities. So to the you know, to the uh, stories that we've heard from the other panelists today, I think, you know, that's a testament to uh, the way that ACE works and why we, how we approach things. Um, the goal is not just to, to win in court, which obviously is nice, but to ensure that when we do win, um, and even if we lose, that we are leaving folks in a better place um, and the movement in a better place um, than it was before. Um, and we, for over 20 years, um, had a pro bono program that matched um, Reverend Dias and the folks in, in Brockton who were representing um, in Brockton Power uh, and countless others with attorneys um, to provide pro bono services. And that was on everything from things like the complicated cases that, that you've heard about from Gwen and, and Reverend Dias to smaller things like just helping community groups to file the paperwork to incorporate as a nonprofit or other things like um, taking back um, abandoned parking lots and brownfields in Roxbury and creating those into community gardens. So people have uh, a space to grow their own food um, and uh, to improve their, their neighborhoods. Um, so there's a broad like uh, variety of types of cases that we have been lucky enough to assist folks um, in need of services with. Um, and the majority of the people that we have worked with are, are people from um, what the state designates as environmental justice populations. So it's the people who are most uh, impacted by and um, burdened from the impacts of environmental injustice inciting um, not only of our infra like our infrastructure like power plants, but also transportation, um, incinerators, et cetera. Um, and that program existed for about 20 years and then in 2015 had to be suspended because of capacity constraints at ACE and funding constraints as well. Um, and we are excited to share that we are relaunching that program later this year in collaboration with uh, local partners who we've been working with to um, bring the program back statewide and, and ensure that folks um, not only in our own neighborhood, but across the state, uh, will be able to have access to the types of services that Reverend Dias benefited from that we're providing to the folks in Brockton. Um, and I think in this moment that, that it is particularly important not only to have a pro bono support for um, folks who are Black, Brown, Indigenous, and low-income, but to have the uh, 
organization that is coordinating and holding that support be one that is from that same community. Um, ACE is Black-led and predominantly Black staffed and accountable to um, our members and residents. And, and um, I think that is one distinct, the one thing that makes us different from some of the other pro bono legal networks that are out there. Um, and as was mentioned at the top of the program, I think that's particularly important because environmental justice is becoming one of those concepts that sort of everybody has some awareness of, but may not actually understand the deep, rich history and, and the link to civil rights and why it is, has been such a powerful and important tool for folks from environmental justice populations. Um, so that's a little bit about EJAN. And then just to uh, answer your second question, Donna, I think in addition to the need for pro bono services, one of the things that, that many of us have spent a lot of time thinking about is the, you know, the unprecedented amount of money that is being made available on the federal level uh, and the state level um, through climate and environmental related legislation. And just um, there are lots of grant applications there are every day. I feel like I'm getting an email from EPA. Um, and so it is things like helping to uh, craft grant proposals or to edit proposals or um, just some of the other day-to-day -day things that we are trained in law school to do, like writing and research that may not be um, litigation. That is another need that I know many of us have, particularly those of us at small organizations with small staffs. But I'll stop there. Thanks, Sophia. And before I um, follow up with a couple of questions, I did want to mention to any of our viewers that they can uh, put their uh, questions in the um, Q&A box for us and all of the speakers will see it. Um, you know, some of the things that you've mentioned, uh, you know, certainly with this restarting of, I think you're calling it EGEN now. Mm -hmm. um, um, I'm used to the old, the old name, an old timer in Massachusetts Environmental Justice Assistance Network. But, um, you know, I, I think we also heard both from um, Mervyn Dias and from Raquel that there really is, there are a variety of types of legal assistance that's needed. I mean, we are the energy and environmental section, but the communities that are out there need a, a you know a broad array of assistance. Um, so they need employment attorneys, maybe, or they um, need real estate attorneys or others. So I just kind of wanted to share that, and I don't know if if anyone else has any other thoughts in that um, about the type of assistance that they need, or maybe um, how does ACE reach out and find attorneys that are whose work. Um, or areas of expertise goes beyond environmental? That's a great question. And I'll, I'll start briefly and just say, I think a lot of it is just networking. You know, I, I think about some of the people I went to law school with who are doing uh, civil rights work or immigration work in particular, um, or work in at firms doing um, land use and, and more traditional real estate um, law. And uh, you know, we have relationships with the pro bono coordinators at many of the, the larger firms, but I, I think a lot of it is, a lot of this is built on trust. You know, I, I know I can pick up the phone and call, call Donna or call Gwen and say, do you know, you know, do you know someone who, uh, does work in this area? And, that goes a long way. Um, but I think, I guess the other piece that I was going to say is I think, um, having an understanding of the fact that often people have multiple things uh, going on at, at one time is really important in doing doing pro bono work in general. But um, it, with with EJ in particular, you know, people are at the cross section of um, race, poverty, and and immigration status often, and so. Uh, having an understanding of how to how to navigate those systems is really important. Thank you. You may actually have answered my second question, but this really goes out either to Gwen or or to um, Raquel or Reverend Dyes. What do you think makes a, a good legal advocate for your um, your organizations? Or I mean, Gwen has had the experience of working with other organizations. 
um, you know, what kind of person, what, what, you know, the commitment they may have, or maybe beyond the skill sets of, of being a good uh, researcher and writer. Well, first of all, I think in, in my situation, I, my, my experience is if they're, they're willing, if they have the time and the inner passion within themselves to meet the needs of the community, especially the law firms of different aspects, you know, uh, then I think if they can buy in, they can um, believe the people, you know, and listen to the people and they buy in and they, they remain faithful, then all of a sudden trust comes in and confidence comes in. And you develop a relationship. It's not only about wetlands now or zoning or enforcement. Then you develop because, you know, time, you know, that's how you develop the relationship. And for my part, if you're always honest to them, you're never lying to them, you tell them the truth, then they believe you, you know, then they, they get the heartbeat of it, it's, it's in their blood. And I'm, I find they're willing to do almost anything, but they have to make assessment of their time, their availability, and how long, you know, like in uh, Mr. McGregor's situation, he always tells me, he says, I'm only here for six hours. I'm not your attorney. He says, did you tell people I'm not your attorney? But but every time I needed him, he, he always answered the question. You know what I mean? So, so you know, so it, the rewards are not only for the community at large, because we're American citizens, taxpaying. We're not educated in this aspect of life. But they, and I think they get rewards, a sense of accomplishment. You know, they, we had a banquet when we did, and I gave um, McGregor and all the attorneys a watch, and I said this to them, I could never pay for your time. We could never pay for your time. But because then we put all money together, then we gave all the lawyers a Seiko watch and said, but we thank you for your time. And he wears it around now. I mean, he probably got more fancier ones, but he wears it around his wrist, he tells me, because he knows I could never pay for his time. But I, I thanked him for the time he gave us, you know, and I think it's not only rewarded for us, but also for rewarding for them, you know. Yeah, I want to echo that. It's really about relationship and building. It's about um, showing up and it's also about having enough flexibility to understand that there are multiple needs that are happening at the same time. Um, and and while, you know, one person or one team can't address all of those things. It's it's also um, really helpful for them to at least consider it as an issue, and then to to continue to and and try to you know link us with resources. And I just you know I want to shout out Sophia. She volunteered with NACOB for um, well I think it was like two years um, exploring what some of those possibilities um, are. For, for our center and helping me to understand even the process of, of reaching out for pro bono assistance. So um, it's a journey and you have to be willing to, to get on it um, and, and to work through tensions, but, but to also want to build something um, with your community partners. Um, and and, and I, I also say that and with the full understanding that, you know, some relationships are, are shorter and some are longer. So please don't feel shy about getting involved with communities, even if you have a limit to the time that you can spend on, on a project, but, but be upfront um, because we still need you. Can I follow up with that also? One thing I experienced in the environmental law organization, not only like McGregor, but his staff and other people, Nadine Colin, but one thing we experienced from law firms, when they give us LSPs, I mean, for technical assistance, I mean, it's nothing more valuable than, you know, we got a guy named Ian Phillips. He is tremendous. I mean, he communicates very well. He understands all about that stuff. And, you know, he interprets it for us. So when the law firms have LSPs and technical assistance community, I think that's very um, beneficial, you know. So it's not only the main individuals, but sometimes the LSPs are very valuable. I'm just going to add that I think, from my perspective, um, patience and stamina are important because I think sometimes um, maybe more junior attorneys 
thing that you get involved in pro bono for glory. And there's a self-centered approach to pro bono. Um, and, uh, and I think what you need to realize is that you might not get the headline. You might not get the epic win, David and Goliath, but fighting the fight, win or lose or draw is actually a progression of, of the values you're trying to push forward into society. And, you know, be proud of that if you don't get the headline win, because you're still pushing the ball forward. And the arc is a long, long arc. And um, you got to do it knowing that even if you don't get the headline, the patience and the stamina will pay off, even if it's another attorney in another case and another EJ com- community. You know, it's a big arc and you got, and someone's got to keep pushing the ball forward. So that's what I would say. Thank you very much, Gwen. And really, um, thank you, everyone. I um, Does anyone have any closing comments they'd like to make? I only want to say- I would just say from a private practitioner standpoint, and I'm gonna let everybody else finish because I feel like they have more ownership of this than I do, but um, do it, I, do it. I think you're gonna learn so much about- um, about yourself, about the communities, about environmental justice. I did not know what environmental justice really was when I started eight years ago. And I I feel profoundly impacted by um, what I've been exposed to, my clients, the knowledge, the facts, the data, the statistics, everything. And I think it's just a critical component of our society that we have a better understanding. So do it. It's good work. It will it will help you sleep better at night knowing that you're you're pushing the ball forward. And I would say, I would encourage all the uh, Boston Bar Association, anyone that's involved, we knew we were right, but we didn't know how to articulate it to get to federal court. If we didn't advocate and bang on doors and go to ACE and, you know, do everything that you had to do, they bought in, they believed in our vision. And when the federal judge said summary judgment, it just it confirmed to me we were right, but we didn't have minutes 11. They jumped in. The lawyers committee, they jumped in. Everybody jumped in. It was a team effort. If they didn't jump in, we would never have been successful to where we're at, where, you know, what we got today. So I just want to say thank you for ACE and all those that were involved. Um, we, we do have a church that's open every day, helping the poor, feeding the hungry, and doing many things. But God used these individuals to save our church and our community and our culture. And we will ever be grateful to Ace and all the people that helped us. Thank you all for uh, coming, for sharing your stories. And thank you to everyone who um, listened in on this program. Um, the program is going to be recorded for the, uh, so it will be available for viewing later. And I do want to remind everyone that we will have the second part in our pro bono series environmental justice pro bono networking fair it'll be in early may so keep an eye out for that and you can be able to that'll be an in-person event i believe and you'll be able to perhaps meet some of the folks here um and have more conversation and and you know uh perhaps find a, a pro bono opportunity both for attorneys from any practice area um and also law students as well so um thank you very much and uh, this is all we have for our program today Thank you. Thank you. Just want to jump on and also say thank you to everybody. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you very much.